Welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Alex Youngman, a director, personal trainer and conditioning coach at Kept Fit Gym in Bolton, Greater Manchester. Alex, welcome and it's great to have you on the programme today. Thank you very much, it's great to be on. Great that you've uh, found the time to come on, especially with all that's uh, going on at the moment. Um, actually, if we start on um, the uh, current climate, really, Alex, um, it does sure. really um, bring the topic of leadership under the microscope at the moment, doesn't it? Because mm-hmm. we've had some very contrasting approaches to the coronavirus outbreak from certainly um, international government leaders. Um, Giuseppe yeah. Conte in Italy, for example, uh, locked down the country pretty quickly. And then here we have, of course, Boris Johnson in the UK, where... Obviously, of course, there are talks of lockdowns being mooted now, but we did initially take a much less sort of hands-on approach, as it were. So the money's there, the procedures are in place, but in many ways, we're sort of waiting to see what happens with that. But taking that away from politics, which approach do you generally prefer as a leader when dealing with difficulties yourself? Do you prefer to sort of dive straight in and get on top of the situation, or do you tend to let it play out a bit and see how things develop before taking action? So the difficulty with everything we've had at the moment is that because it's changing so quickly. So yesterday we had uh, two or three different meetings with different people, all of which were null and void by the end of the day. So mm. we chatted to one set of coaches and tried to work out what they were going to be doing, uh, chatted with my business partner, decided what we were going to do as an action plan of what we were going to do. And then by the end of the day, everything had changed anyway. Um, so it's a case of there's a lot of stress and a lot of worry at the moment about trying to do different things. As much as we are trying to plan, it's very much a case of just thinking on our feet and moving on to the next thing and doing what we can when we can. Um, And we've got a plan in place of what we're going to try and do. Uh, We're trying to stay open for as long as possible, doing as much as we can to make sure that the people around us are safe, our staff are safe, um, everything's cleaned to an absolute, uh, I I don't know, it's it's as clean as it could possibly be, as anywhere could possibly be. and yeah, we're just doing what we can to stay open for as long as possible, to offer a service for as long as possible. Um, we've got coaches to try and provide for. We've got coaches going into schools. We've got coaches working in here in the gym. Um, and we're just going to try and do what we can, spread the work as much as we can so we make it fair and, and yeah, just help them as, uh, if they need to be looking at um, strategy sick pay or anything like that. We're just giving them the advice mm-hmm. where we can. Uh, but it's, at the moment, it's very much just throwing away the punches or going away the punches kind of thing, really. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, as a leader, you can be as proactive as you like. You can have plans in place, but also you've got to be able to be reactive as well. That's a really important quality in terms of being an effective leader, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's just it's trying to react with what comes and just working the best way with, with the information you've got, working out the best way of doing what you need to do uh, and getting the best out of everybody and making sure everybody's happy at the end of the day. Sure. And um, drawing on your own experience, especially from um, the current climate, Alex, um, would you have any advice for other leaders who are facing difficult situations based on that experience that you've had? As in, how, how, how do you mean? Um, you could take it in the context of the current situation, the coronavirus outbreak, based on your own experience, would you have any advice for leaders who are trying to sort of steer their businesses through this challenge? But even in the context of any situation, really, any leader facing difficulties, what advice do you think you uh, would give them? Uh, for me, it's very much the case of if you, 
you show a sort of a sense of worry. If you think about it with kids, kids will get stressed and worried because they see you getting stressed and worried. Um, so if you're calm and collected and have every all the information available to hand and just be positive with that information, everybody around you just gets a positive vibe as well. Um, at the same time, it's not hiding the issues that's going on. It's just making sure that you put a positive spin on it as much as you can. Um, and just make sure everyone around it, especially in, in this environment, mm-hmm. just making sure everybody's happy and everybody's in a very positive light and a positive mood and they'll, we'll get the best out of them if they are in the best mood they can be. Absolutely right. Um, taking it away from the current climate, as it were, you mentioned uh, those positive vibes, that positive atmosphere. Do you think yeah. sort of creating that sort of atmosphere as a leader is a really important quality to have to kind of get the best out of the team that you work with? Oh, massively, yeah. I mean, we're, we're all coaches, so we're trying to get the best out of, we're trying to get the best out of everybody, whether we're trying to lead the way or trying to help them do it. The, the better and the best coach we can be, the best leader we'll be as well. So if we can, break something down, deliver it in different ways for different people, They're making sure they all understand it. They'll do what you want them to do or what you're trying to get them to do because they know that you have their best interest at heart. Mm, that's really interesting. Um, those great leadership qualities that you talk about, um, do you think that's something that people are born with or is that something that you can learn and pick up as you go through life, do you think? I think you can definitely, you can definitely learn it. But again, there's, we have numerous different coaches all with different styles um, all lead in different ways um, you, you can learn it but I think half of it is just your own mentality and um, how you sort of put yourself across um, it's, it's difficult to sort of describe it's, it's I'm a way I'm, a, I'm a, a type of person I am because of the experiences I've had, but at the same time, I then learned how I can get the best out of each other because there's different ways, different people learn in different ways. Um, for me, I'm very much a visual learner. Uh, there's some people that can take things just written down saying, look, this is, and show them, say, this is what we're trying to get you to do. This is how it should look. Uh, this is how it should feel. Some people won't learn that way. Um, so that is very much the case if you can learn how you can deliver certain things. But then it's how you put yourself across, which will then change depending on the people that you're speaking to as well. Because if you're speaking to someone who requires that authoritative, listen, this is what you're doing, you're doing it like that, go away, have a go, see how it feels, and come back to me. And then there's some that you'll need to take under your wing and say, look, we're going to try this and we'll see how it goes and then we'll try something else. And just just having, just changing that tone of voice even as that, those little things can um, have a massive difference to people. And you know, I think as much as you can learn that, you want to really you get more out of experience rather than being taught how to do that, if that makes sense. Yeah, it certainly makes sense. Um, it's interesting that you pick up on that point about different leadership styles. Um, in your case, Alex, would you say that there are examples of leaders living or dead throughout history who've maybe influenced your style of leadership and maybe rubbed off on you in a certain way? Um, Probably not it really in regards to leaders I've looked up to and thought they're a good leader. Um, there are people who've done things and I like the way they've done them. Um, but again, it's, it's not necessarily from a, from a leader's point of view. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, there's numerous differences. Jamie Oliver's one that sticks in my mind. Mm. My business partner's another, Andrea Hoff. 
Um, Jamie, in regards to Jamie Oliver, it's very much a case of how he's developed his business over the years. Um, and when I started, when I was uh, a bit younger, watching him sort of starting, you can you sort of seen his career blossom and what he's done and how he's done it. And he offers a lot for free, which is again an example of something that we do of just trying to put what he's trying to get across as. as openly as possible and as, as widely as possible. And again, it's something we're trying to do with things that we're offering for free in the community and things that we're offering for schools and clubs and different bits that we just try and show people the benefits of what we can do. Um, but there's no one person that I've looked at uh, that I've thought, wow, they're a good leader um, because of how they they do things. Um, like I said, my, my business partner, Andrea, uh, is another great example. Um sort of quite goes away quite understated but uh, is a very small petite lady um, but you know full well she's got all the facts and she knows exactly where where you are with her and you, you can trust her and sort of follow what she has to say if that makes sense um, mm. but just from how she handles herself in here um, with us in the gym um, yeah that's, those are probably the two main examples that I could give but there's no um, one person that I've looked at and thought, yes, I would deem them as a good leader. It's just how they've done things. Mm -hmm. And I would probably do similar things in the same way. Yeah, um, I get that completely, um, Alex. Um, it's interesting that you do mention your business partner because there are so many good examples like that of good leaders who go massively under the radar, maybe because they don't have the same celebrity prominence as somebody like Jamie Oliver, who you mentioned there as well. Um, with that in mind, do you think good leadership is celebrated as much as it should be in this country? Um, it's difficult. I think the only the only probably ways you would see the main kind of leaders is probably in a sports environment mm. where they do get praised because it's quite visual of what they do. Whereas I think a lot of leaders from other backgrounds probably get criticised a lot more. They're probably the first ones to get criticised rather than actually being praised for what they've developed. Mm, I completely agree with that, absolutely, because I think being in the public limelight, especially as a sports person, you are more prominent in terms of the praise you receive. But on the other, I suppose it does leave you in the firing line for criticism when things do go wrong as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, but that's, that's what being a leader is. Even people that are under your, sort of in your team or under your wing, they're the ones that are going to be the first to come and say, look, this shouldn't be done that way. Can we do it this way or can we try that? But again, that's part of the leadership skill of being able to say, right, well, take what you're saying on and we'll try it this way and we'll try and do that. It's not a case of if you're going to go through that very authoritarian and that dictator's kind of role, you're setting yourself up for a fall, I think. Yeah, for sure. Uh, before we wrap things um, up, Alex, um, do you give me an idea of um, what you imagine the next year is going to hold for yourself for Kept Fit and what you hope to achieve in uh, that time? So that probably changed yesterday as well, to be honest. Mm. Um we are we well before the last probably three or four weeks we were looking at trying to uh, expand try and pick up another gym if we can try and see if we can buy a gym that's already existing uh, and, and tweak it so we can make it a bit more like what we do uh, here in um, Edgeworth in Bolton um, and I think at the moment to be honest it will be staying afloat we're looking at different ways that we can um, assist our members if they're going to have to self-isolate and stay at home we're looking at different things that we can try and uh, do online um, different 
sort of class environment of how we can offer something online uh, and offer something to our members privately as well as offering stuff to the wider public as well for free. Um, and what we can do for the schools that have already been um, have been closed by us tomorrow. So we deliver a lot of uh, coaching, like I said, in schools. So we're trying to see if we can set something up uh, again from an online presence of seeing we can offer them anything from a PE point of view, uh, keeping kids moving, keeping kids healthy. Um, because again, one of the best things we can do is keep moving and, and stay healthy to try and help boost their immune system. So if anybody does come in contact with it, they're going to be able to fight it off. Absolutely. Let's hope so. Um, Alex, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the program today and um, it would be fantastic to get you back on PAPSM in a few months time just to see how everything has uh, panned out there. Thanks so much um, for your time today. Absolute pleasure. I'll speak to you again soon. Likewise. Um, It's now time for Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. So Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people, it was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... Um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost I'd been I was a Middlesex player I was Mm. captain of Middlesex all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later I've scored a test century which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test I mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly I started thinking wow hold on potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails so it was a real shock to the system, um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game, and I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that 
this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any, uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club you Quite. know and i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, 
everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch. Uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but 
what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was... We had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, 
especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and an incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers Um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare; it's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help. Uh, Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health. 
and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's a, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i, I just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own 
version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.